Welcome to the second season of Idiot Soup. I'm your host, Anjali, and each week I am joined by new guests as we tackle the hard-hitting topics that influence modern politics. And we do it our best to make it accessible for people from all avenues. This is Politics by Idiots for Idiots. So whether you're a political junkie and a repeated listener or someone who's checking in for the first time, welcome to the family. You're officially an idiot. If you like what you hear during the show, go to our website, idiotsouppodcast.com, or our Instagram, idiotsouppodcast. The rest of our social media handles will be listed at the end of the episode. But above all else, thank you so much for checking in, and we hope you enjoy the episode. So let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Idiot Soup. Uh, season two. Today I have another very special guest in the studio <laughs> in the dorm room today. So, Miss Kim, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Hey everybody, I'm Kim Diaz. I go to Loyola University in New Orleans. I'm a junior and I'm majoring in international studies with two minors, a double minor, which is Spanish and French. You forgot it's your most important resume. Um, we, she makes smoothies. Yeah, works I'm at a smoothie professional shop. smoothie maker, so if you ever need any input on your consistency of a smoothie, please let me know. Yeah, hit my line. Okay, well, Kim and I, um, when I was back in New Orleans and not stuck in South Bend, um, spent a lot of time going to the Black Lives Matter protests in our city following the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, also the murder of a New Orleans native, Modesto Reyes, uh, among others that were murdered by the police in our city. Um, And so we were actively involved in what was going on in our city at that time. So this episode is going to be We're just going to discuss mainly the Black Lives Matter movement that's been going on um, up to today, as well as some other topics, including black on black crime, the dispelling the conservative narrative, and then just some other misconceptions that are brought up when people um, argue against movements such as Black Lives Matter. But I guess we're just going to start kicking this episode off with our experience at the protests, um, what we experienced, especially being in like a city as unique as New Orleans. So Kim, if you want to take it, take it away. Yeah. So as you all know, following the death of George Floyd, protests sparked all around the nation. And I don't know, Anjali and I weren't that close. But then one day I went up to her and I said, we should go to a protest. I told her I was going to one. And she said, like, let's go together. So we went. And this was our first protest together. This is also my second protest in general. And it was a different experience. First off, you don't know what to expect because in all these other cities, you're hearing about protesters being tear gassed. But since all the protests in New Orleans previously had been peaceful, that's exactly what we were expecting. But then like it it took a very big turn of events. It's honestly an experience that I'll never be able to forget and I'll forever hold it. We had, of course, the local Black community speak to us about environmental racism occurring in our community. And honestly, It is so empowering to hear like their experiences because of course when you read stuff on social media it will never be the same than to hear it than the people themselves what they experience and then when they say what they're experiencing in your own city really hits different because it really opens your eyes and shows you what's happening around you and so actually if you want to like speak about the protests a little 
Uh, yeah, sorry. So the protests that we went to, well, the majority of the protests I went to were organized by a single group called the New Orleans Workers Group, which um, for reference as to like their stances and the depth of like the issues that they cover, I'd say they're similar to like a smaller like New Orleans centric chapter, similar to like the Sunrise Movement in that they have a main focus, but they do branch out and cover all areas of the political spectrum. So they talk about like environmental racism. They talk about um, like capitalism. They talk about abuse of the working class. They also cover like a relationship with the police and police brutality and abuse of power and so on and so forth. And so that group was wonderfully, com wonderfully comprehensive, which I think contributed a lot to the protest experience um, in that everybody that was at the protest that we went to, there was this greater understanding that um, like this was a systemic issue. This was something that permeates every level of our society. And so, um, the first week that we went, um, every protest day covered essentially a different topic. So the first one that we went to, um, I, I can't remember them in order, but one of them talked a lot about, uh, like American imperialism and how, that essentially is what fuels like, you know, capitalism in our country. And if you're upset with what's going on domestically, then you have to give a crap about what's going on internationally as well. They also talked about um, environmental racism and like the displacement of uh, marginalized communities. Uh, for example, a lot of minority communities are essentially frontline communities, meaning that they live in places that have higher rates of pollution, commonly referred to as toxic wastelands. And then they talked a lot about education, which I thought was really important because I'm a firm believer that education is kind of the root of the entire whole cyclical nature of our society and, and what it really everything boils down to is education. Um, but so each protest started off with a sort of I, I want to call it a rally sort of as in they were like speaking. They had speakers, amazing speakers, absolutely phenomenal. They were incredibly riveting. Um they just have like amazing life stories to share with the people that went. And then we marched always peacefully. Um, one of the things I'd like to note is that uh, the organizer of this protest specifically mentioned, like, if you came here to start shit, if you came here to riot or you came here to, you know, loot places, then you need to go home because this isn't the protest for you. And that's fine to each their own. And so we started off the first night was Wednesday. We went to a protest uh, in the New Orleans heat, it's probably like 85, 90 degrees, 95, um, sweltering, but, uh, we walked, I want to say like a decent, like t seven miles, was it? Seven miles. Um, and we ended up on a, like the interstate on a bridge. It's called the CCC, the, the Crescent City Connection. And I will let Kim explain what happened after we were on the, uh, CCC. Yeah, so the reason why we actually were protesting on the interstate, of course, each part of our protest did have meaning. We were on there because the area the interstate went through was a historically black neighborhood. So we felt that it would be important to like have our people speak up there and to tell us the history of the city and tell us why we're protesting there. However, as we started going up, we were in fronted with the police. So this is a bridge. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It is very tall and it goes over the Mississippi River, which is notoriously known if you fall and you're going to drown. There's no way of surviving it, basically. So as we're standing there, there's a whole, there's thousands of us, probably 2000 plus, and all of us are just standing there peacefully. We don't even know what's happening at this point, but we can see all the cop cars. 
we see drones flying above us. And at this point, you're just talking to everybody. You're sharing water, you're sharing food, snacks are going around. We're still doing our little chants. Everybody's carrying posters for the most part. But as we stated, we were, this was a peaceful protest. Then maybe 30 minutes plus 40 minutes go on. And we're towards the middle of the crowd and we see that they start throwing tear gas. Originally, we were supposed to be in the front because another friend of Anjali George, he wanted to go to the front because they asked for the white allies to the front. However, I am not white. I am brown. And then I was like, Anjali is mixed and she is a minor. So I didn't want her to go up to the front. And so they threw tear gas, which was a It almost led to a stampede, however, because this was organized strategically, we had other people like yelling, do not run, because if we cause a stampede, people were going to fall off and people were just going to get trampled. So as we're all walking down, people started to get stuck on the bridge. So although we only got like the outer part of the tear gas, it was still very like traumatizing. And when you saw like videos and you turn around, you could see that there were people trapped in the tear gas. They couldn't leave. And so we're going down and they had, since nobody was expecting this to happen, there was no equipment whatsoever to treat the people that were stuck up there. There was only one like first aid kit for all the people, for the hundreds that were trapped. And so at this point, we're just really, you don't know what's about to happen next. You don't know if they're going to start doing rubber bullets, which in the end they did. And we we just like were lucky enough to not be affected by that. I wouldn't call it luck though, because those people were in the end damaged and it was just it was an experience that you can't really fully explain especially all the feelings that you felt because you go from one minute talking to your friends the next minute you're fearing for your life because you don't know what's going to happen next as you're standing over this river yeah and i remember uh getting out of the protest i posted a video of the tear gas we were about probably eight to ten rows back of like very compact so we were pretty close to the front pretty close to tear gas it was very like clear in the picture that i had like taken in the video that i had taken and i had people like texting me and they're they're like no like they didn't use tear gas uh you know the jefferson parish police department is saying that they didn't use tear gas and opd is saying they didn't use tear gas the mayor is saying they didn't use tear gas and i'm like but they used tear gas like i was there like we all felt the tear gas people around us are suffering like we caught some of the edge of it so like you can't tell me that they didn't use tear gas but I think um, that is something that has been very prevalent during all of the Black Lives Matter protests is there's a very strong sense of police propaganda and manipulation and um, like police offices or police um, sheriff departments are doing everything they can in their power to come off as the best as they can during these events. They're denying what they're doing. Um, and it's just a horrifying experience to know like, to understand the grasp that like these entities are actively lying to the people that they're serving. And it's like, how many instances does the truth not come out? How many times are there, you know, not proof that tear gas was used or there was a pregnant woman who was shot with a rubber bullet that night who was like a couple rows away from us. And, you know, they didn't even admit, like they didn't admit what they had done until the video footage was being circulated around on like Twitter. And so it's just kind of a scary experience that and and people, you know, uh, one of the things I really liked at the protest that we went to, she was like, we don't want like your we don't want your like effing kneel. Like we don't want you to kneel with us. Like it's too late for that. Like it's too late for the police officers to stand at the front lines and, and take a knee. Like, are you serious? Like, 
because you know like if they take any that means 30 minutes later they're throwing tear gas into the crowd because they're going to get their little like optic picture and then they're just going to move on with what they refer to as crowd control another thing that was um really worrisome was that they the police office when they were like interviewed by the news or the news was media was covering the incident um they stated that the police office had stated that they warned three times for the crowd to move back. And we were about eight to 10 rows from the front. And once again, like the organization of this protest was absolutely phenomenal because there was a point where like the, she could, the woman in charge, like could hush the crowd in like a second. And there was a point where she was speaking like without, like she was just yelling, like no megaphone, no microphone, just speaking to us. And we could understand clearly what she was saying. You know, she was uh, leading a chant of some sort. And, um, and so if I can hear her speak up there without a megaphone, if the police were to use their like speakers or whatever they use, like their, uh, sound systems on their cars to tell us to back up, like it absolutely would have been heard. And so they lied. They lied and said that they told us to move back. And in reality, what happened was a peaceful crowd was antagonistically attacked. And I understand that people are saying, oh, like you run a bridge, da, da, da. First off, the police knew the route of the protest, as they do with all the protests that were going on in our city. The route was blocked off before we even arrived. And fact of the matter is, if you're so worried about policemen and their jobs, it's their job to sit there all night long to a peaceful crowd. As long as the crowd isn't doing anything antagonistically, there's simply no, you, you can't even argue that the police had to take any antagonistic measures. And I think what we see time and time again in these protests is that the police are constantly the aggressors. They're constantly the ones driving police cars into protesters, into large groups, um, to the point where protesters are literally like setting up bricks so that police cars can't get through. Um, they're creating like, and you can see that they're the protesters are the ones that are creating a system of de-escalation, which is worrisome when uh, it shouldn't have to be uh, that sort of like power dynamic going on that the protesters have to be afraid of police. And it, it's horrifying that we are. I also wanted to add that one of the main reasons we also were on the bridge was because of Modesto Reyes's murder that had just happened priorly the week before. And I wanted to cover that because it really isn't that well known, even though most people do live in the city and it's definitely not well known nationwide. So Modesto Reyes was one of the people who was working in the Hard Rock Hotel Cafe not the cafe, the building that they were constructing, and it collapsed earlier this year. However, they never retrieved the bodies. Well, they just were retrieved within this past month. But since he was one of the people that survived, the state was going to pay him massive amounts of money. But surprisingly, shockingly, he was, he lives in the West Bank, right? And he, it was nighttime. He was doing his normal walk. And the police see him and he was armed, of course, but he had told them. And at this point, he starts recording everything because the police are harassing him. He's on a live stream is what most people said. He was videoing it. And then on the police camera, we see that they're chasing him. And then they tase him. Right after they tase him, they put him in handcuffs. And then somehow the camera gets blocked and then they shoot him. So they had clearly already detained him. They had no need to do that. And they never returned the backpack back to the family that he was carrying. They never gave them back his phone. And then all of the eyewitnesses that were there were threatened by the police department. So that goes to show you that 
yes, that the police department, New Orleans, did go ahead and they're the ones who instigated all of the violence that night. And it's really tiring to hear that, oh, well, these protesters, they're the ones who did it. No, usually it's the cops. Like, we were standing there. Like, how are you going to say that I, like, people don't tend to, they don't humanize the protesters. They just group them. Like, Anjali was a protester. I'm a protester. We were there. We know what happened. And we didn't do any, like, sort of violence to cause that. And just to get to say what, like, Anjali was saying, and then Angela, in charge of the New Orleans Workers Group, she was saying, like, we don't want your kneel. And they had kneeled the night before. So that goes to show you that it's all just a part of this propaganda that they give you. They And they did this in other cities, too, where they kneel. And right literally, as soon as they finish kneeling, they go ahead and tear gas everybody. And they use rubber bullets. And so many people have lost their eyes. But this is where the utmost respect goes for the protesters, because they would say, I'd rather lose my eye again to protest for this movement. And then it's also really tiring to hear that when it goes back to the topic of Blue Lives Matter and when they use that as an argument to combat Black Lives Matter, a Black person is Black 24-7. They can't just, at the end of the day, you know, as a cop does, take off their uniform, take off their badge. Also, how are you going to say, like, a cop matters? That is their job. A Black person should not fear going to the store. One of the speakers at the march right before we started, he was saying that he feared leaving the grocery store when cops were following him. Why should you fear going to the grocery store? Why should you fear going home? There were so many people crying because they said they feared leaving their house each day. Why should you fear leaving your house at any point? You should always feel secure in your city too. And then the people that you're supposed to call on to protect you are the ones that are killing you. They're the this guy, he's a pastor. He said the only per- reason they let him go was because he's a reverend. In the end, it's the community that's protecting you. And the only reason this guy, he's a pastor, he was saying they let him free as soon as he said, I'm a pastor. Before that, they were looking they were getting ready to look in his car and he said he's had multiple friends where they've planted drugs in their car. So that's why it's really worrying to say like, oh, well, cops matter. They're risking their lives to go to these protests. Okay, well, a black person is risking their life each time they step foot outside of their door. And I'm not going to even say when they step foot because Breonna Taylor was laying on her couch when they shot her in the head. You should not fear living in your own home. That is such, honestly, like a controversial thing to say that Blue Lives Matter. They do not. They can take off their badge. And I'm going to say it's just all, we're going to say it like cops are bad because they're following the systemic like system. This is a, it's a system that's creating them like this. If they're actually good, then they would leave or they would try to reform the system and they're not. In the end, it's, they're following the rules of those who created it and it's not there to help people. Yeah. So I, okay. So I want to hit on a few important, so I want to come back to ACAB definitely 100% later to kind of go into that more in depth. But I do want to talk about like an important part of Modesto Reyes' story um, and kind of branch out on that. And that's like just the fact that he was armed, which I think goes hand in hand with like the narrative that people bring up like, oh, Modesto Reyes was armed. Uh, George Floyd had a criminal record um, and things like that. And uh, the first part I want to talk about is like arms in general and like weapons in general. Um, So 
Kim and I together are reading this really good book. Um, it's called, I have it, kind of get, get the author. Um, the book is called Dying of Whiteness. It's by Jonathan Metzl. Um, it's a fantastic book. He is a sociologist, a psychologist, so it has a really nice spin to it. Um, they look into like the psychological reasons um, behind his like thesis. Uh, and his thesis is essentially that uh, in the rural heartland of America, that is communities that are typically uh, dominated by uh, poorer white Americans continually vote for regressive policies that afflict them almost or if not as much as they do my poor minorities simply on the notion of racial superiority. So it's kind of like the LBJ quote you know, uh, paraphrasing, um, if you can make the poorest white man still feel superior to a minority, then you've created that racial divide. But that being said, there's this really good segment in the book that I want to hit on really quickly because the entire first section is about gun control. And it talks about advertisement and the way guns are advertised and the way weapons are advertised. And uh, it talks about this advertisement, the man card that came up when uh, became really controversial when the Sandy Hook shooting took place. But there's this very important part in it where it talks about how owning a weapon as a white man makes you a protector, makes you a savior, uh, makes you a good force in your community. And owning a gun as a black man makes you a threat. And it gives several anecdotes. Uh, one where a white gun owner was touting a gun, uh, a rifle, I think, openly at a uh little league game <laughs> um and uh the police came out and they were like well he's well within his rights and then they left and then story of like some vigilante white dude tackling a black guy who had a permit for his concealed carry gun at a walmart and he's doing it because he thinks that he's making the community safer but then you see like directly contrasting like the dichotomy between white gun owners and black gun owners and how um everything comes down to like the the point of the the fact of the matter is um if an individual is not actively threatening the police uh the gun should matter just as much as their character as in it shouldn't uh everyone has a right to be armed frankly i everyone has different opinions on that i certainly have an opinion on that and not very pro um but that being said people still do have that right so there was no proof that modesto reyes was threatening the police officers the video was conveniently obstructed. Um, but that being said, Modesto Reyes's uh, gun ownership matters just as much as George Floyd's character and that it doesn't. And that those facts are um, irrelevant when you're weighing the case at hand because the fact of the matter is you cannot deny that this was an act of racial bias if you want to sugarcoat the word racism. Um, and this was a decision that, I mean, like, for, like when the cops were, kneeling on George Floyd's neck and killing him, they didn't necessarily, I mean, people say like the cop knew him, worked with him, but the crim the criminal record didn't come up until later. And even so, you're not going to give someone the death penalty for robbing someone. You're not going to give someone the death penalty for illegally possessing a gun. So we shouldn't allow our police officers to have that same unilateral uh, judge, jury, and executor decision-making power and essentially giving someone the death penalty for minor misdemeanor or felony or whatever um and so i think that there is this very misconstrued conservative narrative to demonize the victims in a situation when the fact of the matter is uh their character it simply does not matter because 
police officers are not juries and they're not judges and their entire job is to make objective decisions. So whether they're holding up a rapist at a stoplight or they're holding up someone who goes to church every Sunday and donates 10% of their income, uh, they do not have the right to make any sort of unilateral decision. And I think that's a very important thing to note. Uh, I don't care if George Floyd was a serial killer. I don't care if he was a priest. I don't care if he was a pedophile. The police did not have the right to take his life. And I think it's important to recognize that uh, no matter what kind of person a victim is, they shouldn't be villainized, especially when it's this type of situation. Yeah. And that kind of goes into the question when people are usually like, oh, well, what did they do for that to happen? Well, it shouldn't matter what they did at all. Trayvon Martin was just carrying a pack of Skittles when he was gunned down. How does even then, like, what justifies killing him? Or, like, when a kid, I forgot his name, he had a little toy gun, and then they killed him, too. So it really doesn't matter. And also, how are you going to... George Floyd was killed over $20. There's nothing to justify that, and there's nothing to justify the fact that they were on his throat for so long, for seven minutes and more. And he's saying, I can't breathe. And then... We're now seeing it doesn't just end there with now Jacob Blake, who is breaking up a fight at his child's birthday party, and he's the one who gets shot seven times in the back. What is justifying that? Absolutely nothing. And then this is where that conservative argument that we always like talk about would be, oh, well, how come y'all always talk about at these marches? And they say liberals, they always only talk about police brutality, but they never bring into the fact that there's black on black crime. And there's a lot to bring into that. That's a very heavy statement. First off, by saying that, black on black crime, it's basically saying that black people are more prone to violence, which is a very big stereotype. And also when a white cop kills a black person, it is because of their race. It is not for any other reason. But when, and as they said at the protest that we went to, as Angela said, when a black person kills a black person, it does not have to do with their race at all. It has to do with like personal issues that they have. But as we see so many times, cops always feel the need and they feel, I don't know why, but they always fear when they pull a person of color over as opposed to a white person. A white person can literally bring out an ax as there's this one viral video that went out maybe a year or two ago. It's this white guy coming out of his house with an axe and the cop literally starts retreating but had a black person did that they would have shot him on the spot so it it's like why would you say that no it doesn't matter because of the race and then also it doesn't matter like what the person was doing as Anjali said I don't care if he's a pedophile I don't care if he's a serial killer the cop has no reason to justify killing and you can't a cop can't determine if a person's guilty or not so. Uh, so the first kid that you mentioned was um, Tamar Rice. Tamar Rice, um, I think it was killed in Cleveland. And then there was also like a similar case to Jacob Blake that happened in Lafayette. What well, wasn't like similar, but he was like shot way too many times. Um, and he was like walking towards a convenience store. I think he had a knife in his hand. And this is in Lafayette, and he was like shot ten times, like ten times. They could have just tased, like tased him, just tased the man, just tased the man. Um, but I did want to talk about black on black crime because I think that is a very important narrative to dispel because I think it's absolutely like 
riddled with fallacies. It's something that is monopolized by the right and kind of mobilized to, like you said, it's simply a like a euphemism for the like racist the racist thought that black people are more predisposed to violence and predisposed to crime. And so uh, our very own president uh, recirculated, yes, recirculated, retweeted a uh, a little infographic. And the first thing I find uh, that's very shocking that our president would recirculate this is um, just how shitty the infographic is. Like, it's really ugly. Like, you can tell it's one of those ones, like, you know, like your parents would send on WhatsApp or whatever. Um, It's, like, really bad. Um, But he retweeted the infographic, which I will put up on the website. Um, But the infographic says, Black killed by whites, 2%. Black killed by police, 1%. Whites killed by police, 3%. Whites killed by whites, 16%. Whites killed by blacks, 81%. And blacks killed by blacks, 97%. So, um, first off, these numbers are, like, so like god awfully wrong like they're just absolutely wrong like i i can't even begin to explain to you how they're wrong but i'm going to focus on the two most important numbers and that is black on black and white on white so um yes it is true that most black americans that are murdered are murdered by other black americans the fbi released statistics that this number is around 90 percent however most white americans that are murdered are also murdered by white americans and the number is 84%. So there is a notable, a noticeable disparity uh, to the tune of 6%. But we'll talk about that disparity later. But one of the things I think that is most important to note is that intraracial crime is not a new phenomenon. Intraracial crime is something that occurs, something that has always occurred. Uh, we can talk about segregation. We can talk about gentrification. But that is why intraracial crime occurs, because street crime always occurs in local in local locations because street crime is often a crime of opportunity and when it manifests itself as murder then it is pretty logistically clear why street crime is interracial um but i just want to say that the fact that these numbers are so close and we hear the term black on black crime all the time we never hear the term white on white crime it's because uh Black on black crime is not a term actually generated in, in hopes of, you know, saving the black community or helping the black community. It is a tool of deflection. It is used to deflect the conversation away from the other oppressors in the black community. They're essentially saying black on black crime is the biggest place of the black community. No, it is not. It is our racist policies. Is our it is our racist police. Is it, it is our racist government. Um the reason we never hear white on white crime is because there is no oppressor to deflect from. There is nowhere else to move the conversation. There is nothing to distract from. There is nothing to kind of hide with this false narrative. And so I think that um, that is very indicative of like the malicious intent behind the narrative. And then, so yeah, the numbers do indicate that black people are most commonly killed by black people. But I'm just going to say this bluntly. If you stop at the statistics and you don't look past it, then you're essentially conceding to the narrative that black people are more predisposed to crime, which is an inherently false narrative. You are ignoring all the socioeconomic and historical factors that have, you know, forced segregation and they have forced food insecurity and they have forced poverty to a lot of marginalized minority communities. And you are ignoring First off, the main factors of crime, period. But you are ignoring that there is something deeper at play here and you are essentially burdening Black Americans with something that is not a part of their nature and not 
a part of um, their identity. Also, going off of what Anjali just said, based off of dying of whiteness, there was an anecdote that the guy gave, that the author gave in Tennessee, how there's this one man who is literally dying already. He had some type of liver issue, but he refused to vote for the Affordable Care Act because to him, he said it was going to give other minorities such as Hispanics and Black Americans health care. The fact that he can't stand for the fact that other people can get health care, he said he would rather sacrifice himself for the movement. He would rather sacrifice himself for white supremacy. And so in the end, when people are voting for all these reforms and I wouldn't say reforms, but when they're voting against these reforms, they're damaging themselves. And I would always say that like it's them feeding into white supremacy and white supremacy does not it's not to the advantage of the working class, the white working class at all. So everything they vote against is hurting themselves, but it's dis- honestly disgusting to hear that they don't want other people to get health care. How can you say that you would hate somebody? You don't want them to get health care because of their color. How can you see yourself differently from them? You would rather die than to see a brown person get health care. You'd rather die. And that is honestly awful to hear. Yeah. Uh, jumping off that real quick. Um, one of the things I thought that was very phenomenal about the New Orleans workers group that puts together these protests is they recognized the shared burdens of the poor white community and the poor minority community. They recognized that dividing their interests and not cooperating was working in the best interest of the rich ruling class, the one percenters. It was feeding into and supporting the same capitalistic regime that oppresses them. So she called for, you know, poor white people and poor minorities to recognize their commonality as victims to the system. And I think that's an important message because the whole of dying of whiteness is centralized around how the same policies that negatively affect poor minorities have profound impacts on the poor white community as well. But because they're chasing this notion of racial superiority that simply doesn't exist, they're feeding back into the same system that kicks them down. And so I think it's very important to recognize that there is a strong racial divide in this country that simultaneously keeps us from conquering our economic divide. And the issues are intertwined, but the two racial communities are so separated to the point to where they cannot conceivably unite and and recognize um, or demand from their government what is best for them. Also, going off of what Anjali said, this is where the term for the novel Dying of Whiteness comes in, where the working class, the white people, where they vote against things that could potentially help them, they're in the end hurting themselves and they're dying of their own whiteness. And in the novel, the author also says that in the end, being anti-black is also being anti-white because each time they vote against laws that could potentially help them but they're voting against it because it could help other people he's saying in the book that being anti-black is in the end being anti-white because you're voting against things that could help other communities but they also are in the same socioeconomic class as you so you're killing your own self at that point all because of white supremacy sorry crime is directly linked more to poverty than race or any other factor And the poverty rate is twice as high amongst Black Americans than white. 
And because of the perpetual institutional racism that has been occurring within the Black communities, they have higher poverty rates, poorly funded schools, and of course, as we know, they're more likely to be targeted by the police. And as we see, crime is directly affiliated with poverty because usually we see that people commit crimes for cash. But if we just had a 10% increase in wages for men, it would lead to a 20% decrease in crime. And a 10% increase in a state's minimum wage would create a 15 decrease in that state's incarceration rate. Yeah, and the link between poverty and crime and the fact that it's so strong, like further uh, like enunciates the point made by dying of whiteness in that um, overcoming racial barriers is the key to overcoming economic barriers. And when there is denial of this, when there is... Um, you know, when there is aggression between uh, these races and when there is, you know, victimization and there is um, like degradation just based on race. And this this just perpetuates the system that props up the richest people in this country. And they want this racial divide because this is racial divide is what keeps them in power. And I think that's something that's important to recognize and analyze um, when you're deciding whether or not you want to be an ally in this situation, which hopefully you are, when you're deciding whether or not you want to take part in the movement, whether it's Black Lives Matter or whether it's a local movement, um, you have to really deeply analyze, you know, where the interests of the ruling class lie. The fact of the matter is they lie in creating a racial divide and so i think even if you're not black even if you are an ally um ultimately overcoming this racial divide helps everyone i mean you should be doing it because racism fucking sucks and cops are pieces of shit but um if you can only do something out of self-interest then recognize that it is in your best self-interest still to be an ally here so with that uh we're gonna end this segment we're gonna come right back with ACAB. So if you don't know what ACAB is, if you're wondering, if you're one of the 40,000 people that has texted me, hey, can I get your thoughts on ACAB? Then here are my thoughts on ACAB. And we're going to jump into that. Okay, welcome back to this episode of Idiot Soup. Um, we had some recording issues, so we're both very emotionally drained. <laughs> but we're still going to demolish all cops currently. We're going to make them, <laughs> we're going to obliterate all cops in the next <laughs> couple of minutes um, by talking about ACAB. So, so you want to talk about ACAB? <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what ACAB is, First off, that's kind of weird because this is based, so I don't know how you got here. But second off, ACAB means all cops are bastards. There's a little addendum that means, yes, even your cop dad is also a bastard. Um, and this is a, a term that has been championed by the left, uh, especially has come to a lot of prominence during the BLM protests because, shocker, protesting against cops because they tend to be the one on the other end of um, – this interaction and they tend to be the wrong ones in the interaction but we're here today to talk about ACAB why people use it what it means and why everyone should believe ACAB 
Kim, if you want to say something about ACAB. I sound like we're at a funeral. If you want to say something. <laughs> I just want to say rest in peace to all No, them. rest in chaos, cops. We don't want you. Uh, no rest in power to them. Only people that can rest in power are my people. Okay, so if we start going down the line, I'll be here forever. George Floyd, Trayvon Martin, Rodney King. Rodney King's real. Okay, so as you were saying, ACAB. Yes, ACAB to everyone. And yes, as Anjali said, that does include your dad. I don't care who it is. Me, your uncle, your brother. They're bastards. I'm going to say it forever. <laughs> okay, so I think there's a very common misconception about ACAB. And it means... Um, that like we should murder all cops which i mean like if you're down for the cause we'll talk about that another time but acab the way it's most um the way it's most commonly used is to attack the system as a whole so all cops are bastards when everyone's like oh um i know someone who's a cop that's fine good people can be cops but there are no good cops because when you're a cop you are essentially working within the system that props up oppression which we know already we've covered this in the first half of the episode but the reason that the system itself is so inherently negative and so inherently regressive is the way that police offices sheriff offices are set up in and of themselves so what makes it so regressive is first and foremost the number one villain in the situation is police unions Police unions, <laughs> police unions essentially work to, instead of protecting the community and actually bolstering what a police office is intend to do, police unions instead opt to protect the cops themselves. Meaning that if a cop is essentially a good person that is a cop or a cop is a bad person that is a cop, the police union sees all of this blindly. They afford the same protections to police officers that may be abusing their powers as they do to the police officers that potentially may not be abusing their powers. So what this means is the police union system essentially keeps bad cops in the system or it keeps bad people in the system because as we covered, all cops are bad. Um, But it keeps people that are essentially racist or abusive in the system. It protects their position in the system. It does not allow them to be held accountable. One of the most common ways that that this is done is um, it gives a lot of police officers a leg up when they are being investigated. So a common clause in a police union contract may be that police officers have the right to review any and all footage before making an official statement. Another common one is that they have 24 hours before making an official police statement on an action. So what this essentially means is, um, take for example, the video that we talked earlier about Modesto Reyes. So in the video, um, the footage of the shooting itself is obstructed were a cop in that situation to have access to the video before giving their full police statement and they can see that the video is obstructed then they have no reason to come clean were the cop to simply know that the interaction was recorded but not know that the video itself was obstructed then the cop has an incentive to come clean because they don't know what evidence is how. So by giving cops first access to evidence on them, it essentially allows them to collude, change their story, um, push things under the rug, which like we talked about earlier, propaganda is a really big part of the copaganda, as it's called, is a really big part of the police and their narrative and how they manage to paint themselves in a more favorable light in these situations. So um, that being said, these police unions make it insanely hard for the good people that are still serving as cops to actually be good people. 
So if typically if people come out against other cops that are abusing their power, um, are uh, participating in police brutality, those people are typically sent to the side, marginalized, um, demoted, threatened with suspension, anything to keep their mouths shut. So this means that being a cop in the system and holding up that system essentially makes you a um, factor in a broken in a broken chain, and that's why all cops are bastards. All cops are also bastard. All cops are also- all cops are bastards because let me bring in this one scenario, this one actual case that happened in LA. So there was this. They were partners. One was a black cop and he had a partner who was a woman. And for some reason, she pulled out her arm on the person they were arresting. And he said, there was no need to like, we should be doing this because you did this and you're defying like the law. I'm going to write you up. And he said, I'm going to bring this up to our authorities. However, once he brought it up, everyone completely just they put it to the side. They said, we don't need to be talking about this. And he said, no, I've got to bring this up. So he brought it up to higher officials. And in the end, he got kicked out of the LAPD. And because of that, it sent him on a different track. It's a really long story that I really don't need to be getting into. But we also say cops are bastards because they see all these injustices occurring, yet they still continue to go in the same manner that they were before. There were more cops now. Cops killed more people this year than they had over, like, the previous years. Within this year, we've heard of so many cases of people being killed, and you would think that they would maybe change their way, maybe they would stop being racisters, but they haven't. And in the end, as we've stated before, they're just following the systemic racism. And in order to fix this, honestly, we just need to abolish the system. Like, on the notion of all cops being bastard, um, it gets into a sensitive subject when like people talk about like minority cops. And I'd just like to point out that once again, all cops are bastards and this does include minority cops. I think a very good, uh, pop culture reference to this is fuck the police by NWA when he says the black police showing out for the white cop. Cause the fact of the matter is it is the system that is the problem, not the individual people within the system. The same reason we talk about systemic racism being an issue of policy and overarching, uh, overarching systems at play rather than a simple racist, like single racist person who might say something inappropriate at like a grocery store. It is something that is larger than the cops themselves. And when cops fail to recognize that, then they fall they fall under line as the same people that are essentially actively upholding and supporting the system. Um, it does initially seem a little unfair to say that all cops are bastards when we do understand objectively that it is difficult for people to call out the system. But that's what makes such a drastic call to reform and such a drastic statement so necessary. Um, all cops are bastards and all cops will be bastards until they are no longer cops, until they are community policemen or something other of the sort until money is diverted away and the system itself is inherently reformed because right now it's currently broken. And so I think that um, something that's as inflammatory as ACAB is indicative of the fact that there is a necessity for an inflammatory statement because there is a necessity for the same type of drastic reform. Um, This is not something that can be solved by like, oh, let's fire one racist cop. Like, that's great. That's fantastic. Why don't you put the the four in jail that are walking around free after murdering Breonna Taylor. You know, um, it's something that 
can't be handled on a case-by-case basis. Otherwise, there will keep being cases. It needs to be a uniform, uh, a uniform type of defunding devolution back to community uh, outreach programs and things like social workers and EMTs and mental health professionals. And that's a type of reform that should be more emphasized as opposed to putting money back into police departments because everybody knows that police departments stop crime instead of just showing up after the fact, which by the way, police departments do not stop crime. Half the time, if you call them and you're feeling threatened, um, they will tell you that they can't do anything until something has already happened. Yeah. Also, I'll get into my personal experience, but we, there's also this notion that it's very popular. We say cops are bastards because also we see that Cops respond quicker to phone calls if it's an emergency in a white neighborhood as compared to one in a minority neighborhood, as stated by J. Cole in his song, No Role Models. He says, I came fast like 911 in white neighborhoods. <laughs> it basically shows that if it's in a majority like white neighborhood, they're going to come. They're going to come like right in that moment. But we see this delayed time all the time. And this is where the origin of gangs come in because they... The cops aren't protecting them. They began to protect themselves. All they need are themselves. All we need is a community. When at my work, where I work at, at my work, where, at my work, there <laughs> is this work, one. I work, I work there, and I make money doing work there. Where I got paid to do work there. I hate you. Okay, so at my work, there was this one time in the afternoon where this supposed mom and son came in. And it was honestly just like a very iffy situation because they had both been, they had called the store prior to coming in. Usually I don't really take notice to the customers, but something about them stood out. And when they came in, they came in separately, even though one just stood in front of the door. One, the mom was looking around, looking at the cameras. And honestly, we felt threatened at one point. The son just called out to one of my coworkers about me and was like, oh, tell her she's cute. And I was just feeling really uncomfortable. And then they walked around the whole store and just sat in our parking lot for probably like 30 to 40 minutes. And so we were like, okay, this isn't, it's starting to feel weird. Like it felt iffy. And they were asking all these like random questions like, oh, how long have y'all been here? What time do you close? So it was honestly just starting to feel like we were going to be robbed. And my other coworker started crying at some point because she was really scared. And so ironically i didn't want to call the police because i was like um cops are that was like the week after we had just gone to all those protests (laughs) we literally had just gotten back i was like i can't call them so i refused to and then after work my co-worker saw the people walking in the neighborhood still and so my boss made me go to the police department she didn't even want to come how nice of her so i had to go to the police department and they didn't even write down anything i said so I was like, this is literally just proving the fact that they don't do anything. Also, have you noticed how there's never been a diss track about the fire department? Because they do their job. Police, on the other hand, we got so many diss tracks. I could make one right now Okay, on the spot. if fucking firemen got called to a fire and, like, shot 12 people, like, then, then, <laughs> then there would be a fucking diss track. But they don't because that's stupid and they don't fucking need to. And neither do cops. Exactly. I mean, I feel like... Saying the statement also goes past, like, just racial injustices that they do because, like, a woman can get raped and they honestly just won't take it into effect. They'll ask her what she's wearing or 
this literally was happening on our campus. We had so many girls get raped and they really didn't do anything about it until there was like a third girl that had been raped and she was found on the train tracks. Like, does it really take up to that or when people are being stalked? They're like, oh, well, they haven't done anything yet to harm you. So we have to wait. So at first it goes in with that, but then we also see all these racial inequalities that are also occurring where every time they pull a black man over or a black woman over, they fear for their lives. Why are they recording? Like, why does the driver feel the need to record? And just think about, like, how many people were not filmed? How many people died that we don't know about? And even in Jefferson Parish just this past week, there was a 14-year-old kid who was beat up by our, like, JPSO, the Jefferson Parish sheriff's office so little kid was beat up we also know of another little 12 or 13 year old who was also killed earlier in this year so we just keep hearing about all these things and although they weren't recorded like families are coming forward and we just need to like take into consideration that there are many other things that are happening that we just don't know about and on the topic of like cops not doing their job and like you mentioned, like the police brutality that takes place in our own neighborhood, um, there was a really interesting thing, I think, that goes back into like the ineffect- ineffectiveness of the police. Um, in Jefferson, or in, I think it's New Orleans Parish, there are like 17 uh, police files of incidents that are like absolutely synonymous word for word. And the only thing that's different on them, written differently on them, is the name of the victim that was killed in this altercation by the police. And so just the fact that cops are, like, verbatim writing down reports because they don't feel the need to disclose what happens in an instance that ended with an individual's death. They don't feel the need to clarify, even to some extent, give families closure about what resulted in a human being's death is indicative of the fact that the system does not force accountability to any degree. And it goes beyond just that. It goes into the prosecutor's office where prosecutors absolutely refuse to prosecute cops. For example, Amy Klobuchar came under really heavy fire for her history as prosecutor when she failed to prosecute um, Officer Chauvin, the officer who was infamous, who was infamously known as Uh, George Floyd's murderer and you just see that there is this continued trend of any way that law enforcement can avoid responsibility they will we see this in them utilizing qualified immunity meaning that uh, government officials are shielded from potential civil lawsuits for things such as police brutality unless there is proof that they knowingly uh violated that um constitutional right and it's just it's a heavy burden to prove in court and our system is geared to keep cops out of trouble which is absolutely ironic because the people uh supposedly enforcing the law should be the people who follow the law the best um and that's not the situation that we are currently living in but i think it all draws back to a lack of accountability Uh, cops aren't taught accountability cops aren't expected to be held accountable and that's why the system itself at its bare bones is so egregiously flawed so for a cop a cop in louisiana only has to go 360 hours of police training while a manicurist has to go under 500 hours so why is it that 
they literally have to go under less time of training when they're the ones who are supposed to be imposing the law. And as you said, ironically, those who are imposing the law are the ones who break the law the most. And then there's always that argument on the, they're like, oh, well, nobody's above the law. Clearly, people are above the law. This doesn't even just apply to, like, just cops, but this implies in general to, like, our political system and even, like, yes. to the president that we have. That's, like, a whole other topic that we no, could get into. No, because you know what's insanely like ironic is that like all of political theory going back stretching back like years like millennia like back to the most foundational political theory basically contends that like there cannot be justice and there cannot be democracy without establishment of rule and law and we continually abuse the rule of law and continually violate it at the most basic level at which it can exist i mean how can we expect a free and transparent society if at the most fundamental level at the first level where there is a power structure implied of enforcer versus conformer we violate the rule of law and so i think and so i think that pretty much sums up why our current policing system doesn't work why there are such calls for defunding the police which we'll probably hit on in a later episode and go in depth into that um but i think that speaks to why the system is so broken and to why there has been so much unrest and I think that these demands are not as radical as they may seem when you actually take a look at the system and realize how deeply flawed it is. My friend wants to do environmental racism. He was like, oh my gosh, come on. He's really cool. Okay. So with that being said, uh, I'd like to close out this episode of Idiot Soup. Thank you so much, Kim, for being a guest on the pod. As Thanks always, you're always me. welcome back. And have a great day, you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hey, Cab. <laughs> Hey, Cab, though, wait. Oh, wait, I forgot. Uh, I got to put this in right before closing. Um, this is our idiot soup. I'll probably put it in, in the in the intermission, but this is our idiot soup mandated time in which we urge you to, if you have not yet, please register to vote and request your absentee ballot. And as soon as you get it, vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Send that video right back in the mail. As you know, our president hates the United States Postal Service and is doing everything in his power to make sure that your vote is not counted this fall. So please make sure that your vote is counted. Please make sure that you are voting and doing everything in your power to ensure that we do not have another four years with Donald Trump as our president. And with that being said, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Idiot Soup Podcast. You can find us online at idiotsouppodcast.com, on Instagram at idiotsouppodcast, on Twitter at idiotsouppod, and also on Facebook, Idiot Soup Podcast, a political podcast. You can listen to future podcast episodes on YouTube, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and many more platforms. You can find all of those platforms out on our website and feel free to contact us. So goodbye. Goodbye.